Welcome to BIV Today, where the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Coming up today, Research Co-President Mario Canseco is going to reveal how British Columbians' negative sentiments toward American President Donald Trump might be souring us on the United States. And BDC Chief Economist Pierre Claroux delves into a new report from the bank detailing how BC is facing one of the most acute labor shortages in the country. A range of innovative, disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. Join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to focus on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, go to BIV.com slash events. Up next, Mario Canseco joins us from Research Co. Candidate Donald Trump did not exactly elicit warm sentiments from most British Columbians in the lead up to the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. That's according to polling data that we have from a few years ago. But after more than a year and a half in office, have feelings about the U.S. president changed here on the West Coast? With us to talk about the latest polling data detailing how British Columbians feel all about the American president, it is Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co. Mario, thanks for joining us on the show. Great to be here. So Thank you're you. the president of Research Co., not the president of the United States, just so everybody No, I am ineligible to be president of the United States unless there's some changes, Fair some enough. things that need to be made. I would just hope that, uh, I guess, British Columbians have a fonder sentiment of you than maybe they do of the U.S. president. <laughs> Is that accurate to say based on the data that you've got? I sincerely hope so. It's okay. been very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to connect with what is happening in the United States. There's a certain level of curiosity about what is going on and certainly more residents paying attention to U.S. news. Um, but definitely the feelings of fondness that we used to have to the American president, particularly the last American president before Donald Trump, are gone. Do we think really that slightly about Donald Trump as a country? Absolutely. I think that's definitely part of the problem. You know, there's a sense from the residents, even though we share a border, we've been friends for years, it's an important relationship. The fact that he's in the White House made things very difficult at the start. But now that we're having all of these discussions about NAFTA, about what is going to happen with other things, it's making it tougher for residents to say, I like the U.S. and I'll travel to the U.S. and I'll buy U.S. brands. So it's definitely taking a toll. I mean, maybe I'm not trying to give away any sort of uh, leanings that I have, but I still like traveling down, visiting friends down in Washington state. I, I haven't necessarily been to some of the more red leaning states recently, but I mean, uh, do we not have, I guess, some sort of feeling that there still are good allies, they're still friends to a certain degree, or, or is it just completely soured because of the president? Well, I think it has soured because of Donald Trump. Uh, definitely, we see a higher number than we used to in the past of people who aren't buying U.S. brands, who aren't traveling to the U.S., uh, certainly paying more attention to news. I think that's quite shocking. I mean, there's a sense um, that we didn't have before from Canadians who understand how the electoral system works in the United States better than they did before, who are paying attention to the news, who suddenly are talking about Russian collusion or whatever it is that's on the news. Um, so there's more attention, but it's not necessarily a situation where you're commiserating with, with our American uh, friends. It, it's more about, you know, once you get rid of the president you have, maybe I'll spend more money. Is, uh, are we starting to see yet, Mario, I think the idea that as Canadians, we are now getting a very different image of Americans as a result of Donald Trump 
uh, in a sense, magnifying the polar opposites here, right? It has changed a lot. I think if we go back to uh, the early years of the George W. Bush administration, we had a situation that was similar. We had Jan Kretien and Bush who didn't see eye to eye. Things weren't working very well. There was a lot of criticism about Bush and whether he was ignorant or, you know, things like that. Uh, it's uh, It seems like a fantastic time compared with what we see today. I mean, when we asked about Barack Obama in 2009, 2010, every Canadian was very happy with him. There was this relationship that was more sim- symbiotic, even though we had a conservative prime minister. Sure, because the, the, you know, the Republican president or the Republican nominees, in a way, were tamping down some of the, um, some of the starker emotions that now you start to see with those that are now Republicans or Tea Party or or Donald Trump's cohort, that in a lot of ways, our image as Canadians of Americans has been altered, has been reshaped. It has just changed by, dramatically. Just by Donald Trump and what he's unleashed. Well, more than anything, because now they have a person in the White House who is going to relate to that, who is going to call people who have racist feelings very fine people on both sides. I mean, there is a sense now, there's always been this way of looking down on the Americans because of their yes. ignorance about Canada. Right. But now you're looking down on the president of the United States, which is something we haven't done before. And we're revealing those who support him in a very different way. We, I think a lot of Canadians didn't think that there were that many people who thought, whose, whose thoughts were aligned with Donald Trump. Well, that is definitely part of the exercise. I mean, going back to the Electoral College and, and the fact that the Democrats like to say that Hillary Clinton got millions of votes more, uh, we still have that situation of looking into specific areas where a lot of people voted for Donald Trump who weren't expecting uh, that he was going to win. And, and now I think part of the situation is, can we find that savior? I remember asking about Barack Obama in the early stages, and very few people knew who he was in Canada. And he started to climb the charts, and he became somebody who was very popular. Who is going to be that person a year and a half from now? Are there any signs? I mean, you look at maybe what the Democratic slate is right now, and there's a lot of people that I I don't know if Canadians would really recognize their names as as rising stars at this point. It's true. I think there's a sense uh, from the residents of, well, whoever it is, uh, will be better than Donald Trump. Uh, I think that's definitely part of it. The, the Democratic presidents and candidates have always been more popular, with the exception of those two great years of Mulroney and Ronald Reagan, <laughs> where yeah. there was a very different uh, way of, of, of looking into things. Um, but I think, you know, part of it has been, who who can we find? Who do we trust? And, and there's definitely candidates out there who are well well known and more capable. I mean, two years ago, I probably would have said Al Franken, but that ship has sailed. Uh, somebody, no. you, you could fight fire with fire. You bring in somebody from television to fight Donald Trump. Like uh, Michael Avenatti, like, like he's been uh, out there saying that he is serious about running for president on the Democratic slate. And this is kind of a fiery brand as well to go up against the Trump uh, image at this point. How does our own image of our prime minister then have an impact on how we perceive the U.S. president. So how does Justin Trudeau's management of Donald Trump and all of those issues uh, affect, reshape how it is that we think of Donald Trump? I think it definitely plays a role. It's, it's a different kind of relationship than the one we've seen before. We've always had this situation over the past few years where uh, the party in, in power in Canada has been conservative or liberal, and it's never been with Democrats or uh, Republicans. There's always been a situation where there's a clash of ideologies when it comes to the heads of government of the two countries. 
And I think we see that now. I think part of the difference is, you know, Trudeau has been very adamant in discussing issues that are more much closer to his base, more liberal, more feminist in many ways. And that definitely helps in, in shaping our views of him very differently than somebody who was caught on tape saying the things he did. But there, there is also now an emerging dissonance between these two leaders. And at, at first, of course, Justin Trudeau found himself almost embraced by, by Donald Trump. Um, as time wears on, what do you think we have to infer from this in terms of the Canada-U.S. relationship? Does it help Justin Trudeau to now start moving some, you know, have some distance between him and Donald Trump as he approaches an election? I think it's advisable for him, particularly because uh, all of the criticism about the NAFTA ne negotiations coming from the conservatives and the, however the party is named by Maxime Bernier <laughs> uh, uh, is called, um, it's, a, it's a complex matter because it, it sort of seems like you're attacking Trudeau, but in the same way you're saying that we should cave into whatever the U.S. president wants. And it's a strategy that is not going to go very far. It's better for Trudeau to just try to wait it out and, and be critical when he has to, but not necessarily cave into whatever the U.S. president wants to do. It's a little bit easier for the Mexican president because he's out of here in December, on, on uh, December 1st, um, but it's much tougher for Trudeau, who will be fighting an election soon. Yeah, a bit of a political tightrope, especially a week like this for uh, one Justin Trudeau, where you have both the NAFTA negotiations maybe not going the way exactly that Ottawa had planned for it as well. So I, I do wonder how much that can influence Canadians' own feelings about our prime minister going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president of the United States, who, I don't know, there's arguments maybe he outflanked them in this particular go-round. Well, it's a tough one at this stage, you know, unless we have a final deal and something that will hopefully please most of the players, it'll be a little bit easier to know. But it's easy for the conservatives to go back and say, well, you know, this is something that never should have happened. He hasn't, he hasn't done, done things properly. It's been difficult for the conservatives to find their footing, uh, particularly on the Kinder Morgan issue also. You know, nothing that they've been saying has been connecting very well with the residents. And I think it's a complex matter. I don't think you win political points by saying that we should do whatever the U.S. president wants, regardless of who the president is. But this one particularly, we, who has a disapproval rating around the country of 80%. Um, if you were to take Donald Trump out of the equation and you're just looking at Canadian attitudes towards, say, president's past and maybe prospective president's future, uh, what do you think your poll would start saying? I think it would change dramatically. I mean, we saw it during Barack Obama's term. Uh, there was a, a difficulty, particularly from liberal voters and NDP voters, of connecting with the United States on an ideological basis when George W. Bush was there. They were upset about the Iraq war. They were upset about Afghanistan taking as long as it did. And at the final stages, they were upset about the housing crisis. Everything changed when Barack Obama became elected. And we did have a situation where uh, Canadian voters were looking at him as a leader, somebody they could trust. And there were these really nice feelings towards the U.S. during that time. But that's, that's now gone because of Donald Trump. So depending on who the next president is, if and when there's a new president elected in 2020, maybe those numbers will change. And going back to... Uh an earlier part of the discussion where we talked about how what Justin Trudeau's own image is like and how that then has an impact on how we feel about the U.S. president. If Justin Trudeau had stronger opponents politically, might we think differently about the U.S. president? I think that's definitely true. Uh, looking into the situation, there are so many Canadians who are unaware of who Andrew Scheer is, who are unaware of who Jack Singh is. And that plays a role into the way in 
to you into which you look at Justin Trudeau. He's we, now a global player. We only see Trump through Trudeau's eyes in a certain way, and we don't uh, anticipate that Justin Trudeau is, say, not going to be the prime minister in a couple of years' time. That's definitely part of it. I mean, there's no uh, situation right now, at least, where uh, there's a suggestion that the conservatives will win the next election. It's not like they're climbing the charts the way they should or the way they could or the way they have before. So that's definitely part of the problem. There is a situation where because of the lack of a competitive rival within domestic politics, uh, the rival, in a way, is Donald Trump. Okay, so Mario, next poll you come out with, I'm sure it'll have a big turnaround for British Columbians. Uh, the vast majority of the province will be loving the uh, new president uh, that we have right yeah, now. Yeah, what would he have to do, by the way, to be loved? That's uh, what that's what I want. That's what he wants to know, uh, too. Uh, what, what, what does he need to do? <laughs> well, uh, be an effective communicator. And, um, oh, I think he's fairly effective as a communicator. Right? I, would, I, like, I would say... I, I think he's... I mean, yeah. you, you can argue on what you consider well, effective, but he's certainly... He he communicates and it reaches uh, a certain uh, population. Well, I, I think this unambiguous. I hate to go Clintonian <laughs> on this, but I guess it depends on what your definition of effective is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> excellent, uh, Mario. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. From construction workers on job sites to chefs and servers at restaurants, employers across British Columbia, they've been facing severe labor shortages for years. And a new labor study from the Business Development Bank of Canada reveals just how acute this problem is here on the West Coast. Joining us today to expand on these problems and maybe offer some solutions, it's Pierre Clarou. He is the chief economist at the Business Development Bank of Canada. Pierre, great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. How, uh, how bad is bad? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worse, I would say, than before. Um, and there's two reasons for that. First, we have an aging population in Canada and in British Columbia. So there's not as many young people entering the workforce than before. So that's the first reason. And also, the economy has been doing quite well. So we need to, uh, to hire more people. And that's the second reason why it's so difficult to recruit people right now. So tell me a little bit about what is going on here. You look at British Columbia, we've got a reputation for maybe lower wages as well as a higher cost of living. Is it an issue of that or, or why are we facing these kind of acute factors here right now? Well, it's um, probably related, but the most important problem is, and it's across the country, it's a bit more acute in British Columbia just because the economy is performing better than in the rest of the country, but uh, it's the baby boomers who are retiring. You know, 20, 20 years ago, for each Canadian that was retiring, there was two young Canadians entering the workforce. Today, this ratio is one-to-one. So mm-hmm. as many people are at the age of retirement, there's not enough young people entering the workforce. So that's the most important uh, reason for this uh, issue is really demography. Then what does that uh, mean in terms of uh, the implications for things like pension programs, uh, some of our larger ticket items that governments uh, have to finance through tax revenue, things like health care? Are we moving inexorably here toward uh, much more of a crisis in terms of public financing? Well, definitely, uh, definitely, because 
um, in about 10 years, 25% of Canadians are going to be over 65. We had a young population in Canada, so that was based on a young population. Now our population is much older, so the pressure on the healthcare system, for example, is going to be great. So that's one of the impact of an aging population. The other impact is like what you said, is for business, it's much more difficult to recruit people now. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a reputation in Canada of maybe having a more progressive immigration regime than other developed countries, but I understand based on this report, Canada still has problems with recruiting from our immigrant labor pool. What's going on exactly here? Why is there a bit of a reluctance on the part to reach out to, I guess, like this population that is kind of replacing the older aging demographic? Well, you're right, uh, and it's uh, it's helping. Eighty uh, percent of the new labor labor in the labor force in the next ten years is going to come from people who are not born in Canada. So immigration is part of the solution. But when we ask small business owners across the country, what? Are you doing what is your strategy to mitigate the shortage of labor well it's it's very low on their list only 18 percent said they're looking at immigration so we have to change the perception the perception is it's more difficult and complex to our people from outside uh, who are not born in canada and as the population is getting older, I think we won't have a choice. We have to really look at every part of the population, and especially the one who are underrepresented in the labor force right now. What kind of intersection do you think automation will play in all of this? Might we have fewer labor needs that we then can satisfy? Or is it going to be a mismatch? Yes, I think, yeah. um, Technology automation is one of the solution. And in our research, we realized that mid-sized firm are looking at automation as one of the number one, actually the number one solution to mitigate the problem of a shortage of labor. This is not the case for smaller firm. So uh, the way we understand it is you need to have a certain size for you to make it, so it makes sense that you invest in technology. But definitely for businesses with more than 100 employees, when we ask them what is your strategy to respond to the need of workers, the number one strategy is automation. But is there reluctance, I guess, on the parts to invest in a lot of this technology? You mentioned that for smaller businesses, they don't necessarily see that as a solution just yet. Is that because the cost might still be a little bit too high just to invest in that or just a, a different way of thinking about how they approach technology? It's probably a bit of both, but obviously if you have a smaller company, you can have a, an automated cash register. We see that more and more. But these equipment cost $150,000. So you need to have enough volume to justify this investment. We see that more in larger businesses. But I think it's both a case of perception and also the the return on investment for smaller business. Yeah. Your, uh, your study, of course, surveys uh, the business community, but the solutions aren't entirely going to come from them, many of them will have to come from government policy. As you see it, what would be some of the priorities for policy in the time ahead to 
reverse some of this troubling trend? Well, I think uh, immigration is one of the uh, solution. So to encourage immigration, also uh, to encourage other underrepresented section of of, uh, uh, of the labor force. So, for example, people who have uh, uh, some uh, handicap, which mm-hmm. are often left out of the labor force. I think we have to make a better effort to integrate them in the labor force. Also, I think uh, training is very important because we have a mismatch of skills between what the skills people have and the the skills that are needed in in businesses. For example, it's very hard. It's almost impossible to find a mechanic right now. There's not enough mechanic in Canada. So uh, uh, education institutions have to adapt to this new reality. Yeah, but this, these are uh, areas uh, uh, employing people with disabilities, uh, underrepresented, and even in the trades. These are areas where I wonder whether um, it's just the public image that we have here. But these are these are areas that have not been encouraged because they're almost stigmatized. Um, how what do we have to do as a society? Do you think to get rid of those stigmas? Well, I think we have to change. I think the labor force is changing, and so the re- recruiting should change as well. I think we, sh- we have to change our perception about um, some uh, group of people in our society. And I think it's a great, as it's so difficult to recruit, I think it's a great opportunity to do that now. Mm-hmm. Well, it also makes me think, you know, if we're getting to people earlier in high school, we're also approaching, like we mentioned earlier, I guess the immigrant labor force. It is going to be an array of different people. But I wonder how long that's going to take because you guys actually analyze the severe labor shortage that we're facing right now. And it's not something that's just going to last, say, a year or two years. What kind of time frame are we looking at at this moment here in British Columbia? Well, you're perfectly right. It's not a temporary um, issue. We believe it's going to last for about 10 years, but have a larger number of people joining the labor force just because 10 years ago we had a mini BB boom. So it takes about 20 years before they get to the, to, uh, the labor force. So it's going to last for about 10 years. So that's a long time. And that's a very important to understand that as businesses because it's not going to be only for a few months. It's going to be there for for a long time. So you have to adjust your action. You have to think differently about recruiting people. Mm-hmm. What about, you, you pointed earlier to the notion that a lot of baby boomers are leaving the workforce. They're retiring or they're moving into semi-retirement anyway in some cases. Is there anything you think that governments um, ought to be trying to do in order to keep people in the workforce longer? Um, Yes, the the government can do a number of things, for example, by postponing the uh, retirement age. Many countries around the world are doing that because this situation is not unique to Canada. We have an aging population in in many other developed economies in the world. The the most famous example is Japan, where where this is actually more uh, acute or advanced than, than it is in Canada. So that's that's one thing. They can also encourage uh, by tax reform, they can encourage people to stay longer in the labor force. 
Already we can see in the numbers that the number of Canadians over 55 who are working is increasing, has been increasing over the last 10 years. So people are working longer because, well, we are living uh, longer now. Yeah. Uh, we are in better shape. And also, you know, the need, uh, the opportunities are there. So, so that's one of the solutions as well to keep our people longer in the labor force. Well, Pierre, always a pleasure. I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's Pierre Clarou. He is Chief Economist at the Business Development Bank of Canada.